Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Who had an awesome Easter weekend? Man, that was so fun last week. Loved seeing all the kids, you know, stampede out into the field for the egg hunt. I happened to find a couple eggs myself and got to enjoy some candy. Always a good time. Stephanie uh, and, and many others brought amazing treats for Easter. There was donuts that were brought. I, <laughs> I needed that passage this morning read to me, Peter, that Christ stops us from the indulgence of the flesh. <laughs> I may have had three or four of those donuts. They were amazing. Before Easter, uh, had a great time too on Good Friday. You guys were able to make it there. There were seven churches that came together to celebrate the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say there was over 300 people there. Midway Covenant was packed out. Come to find out later, there was another church that joined us, the United Church of Christ of the Marshall Islands. It was really fun. Uh, we're, we're hoping and praying that, that we can do more community events like that. The pastors are like, man, we need to get together and do like a worship night. Like, why don't we do this more often? And that's kind of the feedback I've heard. You know, Nick, like that first, right as he left, like, this was awesome. Why don't we do this more often? Like, yeah, that was kind of the feel of... It's really cool and beautiful for the church to come together like that. Uh, and that was such a great time. Easter has a special significance in the life of our church. I don't know if you know this, but March 27th, 2016, 12 people came together, or 14, in, excuse me, 14 came together to form the Mountain Church. It was Easter 2016. And for whatever reason, 2016, I'm not sure how Easter falls. You got, one of you guys might have to educate me on how that works. But it was March 27th of 2016, the Mountain Church came together to form and to become a church. And these last six years, we've learned a few things. <laughs> we are, you know, we just kind of graduated from, from toddler, toddler, what is it called? Toddlership? Toddlerhood. Thank you. Thank you. Toddlerhood. We've seen a lot of transition, especially these last couple of years. We've seen the church, uh, many people transition into the church and join with us. We've seen many people transition out over the years. We've, we've met in five different locations. We've tried different programs and strategies. <laughs> we've made a lot of mistakes. But the, we've seen the Lord's grace manifested and displayed through our weakness. We've seen growth in Christ. We've seen people growing up into Christ. I've seen growth in my family. I've seen growth in each of you in Christ. We are growing in gentleness and love and goodness and kindness and self-control. We are moving past kind of common interest friendships to friendships of deep kind of self-sacrificial love of becoming family almost. We've seen growth in humility. I've seen growth in humility in myself. I, I hope you've seen that as well. <laughs> I hope you've seen the Lord humble me. Seen the Lord drought greater self-centeredness, greater self-reliance, self-dependence, and greater dependence upon him and in prayer. We've seen the grace of God evidence in baptizing individuals and couples and families and children over the years. We've, we've seen God make the gospel real to people's hearts as they take professions of faith and, and demonstrate, I have now decided to believe in Jesus. We've seen husbands released from the shackles of guilt and shame of pornography. We've seen mothers find healing and learning new patterns of relating to their children and, and their families. We've seen men and women grow in their confidence and their security in Christ. We've seen members forsake the love of money and give themselves up in acts of generosity and joy. 
We've seen a settling of the soul in members as they experience anxiety and depression and worry. We've seen freedom from expectation and people-pleasing and false religion and judgment. This has all been evidences of God's grace as I've seen this in the life of our church. And to this, we can say, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for being at work in our life. We've seen great honesty and confession and realization, admission of pain and doubt and wrestling with suffering. We've seen us trying to strive to grow to become a community that does not accept and love one another based on how well we're doing, but simply because we are accepted and loved in Christ. We believe that by faith, we belong in Jesus. We have already found belonging. Therefore, we seek to love and to serve and to care for one another out of this sense of belonging. Amen? It's a work of faith. Needless to say, looking back, think about Easter. It's just think about the, the memories that we've had on Easter. Last Easter was an amazing celebration. It's so a joyful atmosphere, just a, a freedom felt, uh, a happiness to be here in the room. I'm excited about what God's doing in our church. We've talked about kind of, you know, we've, we've grown and, and pandemic. We had many families that left our church and were sent out as it's been called the great migration in our society. As, you know, jobs became all of a sudden remote and families could move to a place that was more affordable. We feel like we have a, a membership here that loves each other, that wants to see the gospel at work, that wants to see Christ do something in our midst. And for that, I'm excited. I've seen through the pandemic, the pastors are coming together in a way that is, is a newer commitment, excited commitment together. And to me, when pastors and churches and Christians in a community want to come together to serve, that is an effort that glorifies Jesus. That is in fulfillment what, what Jesus prayed, that we would be one just as the Father in heaven is one. I met with the mayor this, last, this past week, and He's recently installed into office in Des Moines, and he wants to pray with pastors. He wants to have pastors into his house to pray. He lives up in, in North Hill neighborhood of Des Moines. He has said it's a 360 view of the water and the mountains and Mount Rainier, and he wants people in his house praying over the city. That, that is an answer to prayer. That is good news. That's exciting. We are seeing people wanting to come together to collaborate, to seek the common good in our city. And needless to say, there's going to be opportunities for us to serve. Like society is opening up and we are, yes, let us serve. We want to serve, amen? I've been dying to serve in a way in which Waterland Festival is not canceled. It's not virtual, right? It's hard to serve in a, on Zoom. I'm not sure how you do that. <laughs> it's just different. We believe that it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive, as our Lord Jesus taught us. So this summer, there will be opportunities to serve at the Waterland Festival. As soon as I get details for that, I will send that out. Uh, the parade in July, there's going to be opportunities to help pick up trash and clean up on the streets. There's going to be a community barbecue that we can help serve at. Those are events just with the city. And, and we can plan our own you know, community barbecue here and use the field and, I don't know, go around the streets and throw invites to people or something shoot t-shirts, <laughs> something cool. I don't know. We could have a community barbecue out here in our field. And I'm, I'm just really excited about what God's doing. And I hope you guys are too. I, I feel like there are, there, there are times in the church where I felt like when we just come out of one, I think, 
where we are seeking kind of healing to reconnect together. And I think moving into the summer is going to be a time of how do we engage and serve and reach outward. And I'm super excited about that. So enough of me talking about that. Let's look at our, our text, the Bible. Let's hear from God. If you haven't already, Peter read from Colossians 2, 16 through 23. So open your Bible there with me if you haven't yet already. If you don't own a Bible, we have some copies of the Gospel Transformation Bible in the back. It's a great study Bible. It helps you see how, how does Jesus come through the text? How does the, the kind of tagline is proclaiming Christ through all the scripture? It's a great study Bible. I'd really recommend that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you back here on the welcome table. In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16, Paul is writing to the Colossian Christians and he's calling them to not let anyone disqualify them. He's, he's telling them, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify. He's calling the Colossians to resist as we've, as we've explored these external influences that were influencing the church who were coming alongside the church and saying, uh, if you want to have, you know, real spiritual protection, you have to do these things. If you want true, deep, meaningful worship experiences, you have to do these things. And Paul is, is calling the Colossians to not let anyone lead them away from the gospel of grace. He's calling the Colossians, don't have anyone lead you to the kind of uh, polytheistic mysticism. Don't have anyone lead you to, on the other extreme, maybe a, a strict observance of the laws of the Torah. Center and focus on Christ. This is what Paul has argued throughout Colossians. At the heart of the Christian faith, at the center of the Christian faith, is the message of grace by faith. And, and that's it. That's salvation. By grace through faith in his kindness, in undeserved kindness, God has looked upon you. He's loved you and accepted you and forgiven you and, and chosen you on the basis of what Jesus has done. That's what Paul has said, the basis of what Jesus has done. You get the credit of another person's work by faith. That's the gospel. The debt has been paid. You've been freed from your prison of self-centeredness and sin because another one paid the debt. Another one was imprisoned so that you could be set free. And this is the gospel that Paul has proclaimed to the Colossians. And this is the gospel that he's saying, don't let anyone influence you another way. Like you're not disqualified because you don't observe the rules like these Jews might. You're not disqualified because you don't have these powerful worship experiences, these, these deeper you know, rites and rituals and, and worship alongside angels or of angels like others are advocating for. Right relationship with God, communion with God is founded upon the basis of faith. You believe by faith in the work of Christ, you believe it's already happened. The benefits have been given to you and you live by faith that that really has happened. And this seems to be too good to be true for many. Seems too good to be true often for us, isn't it? If we're honest, I think there's a tendency in all of us to, to we won't believe this because we've been raised, we've been conditioned. Our mindset is to think, I need to do good to be loved. I've got to work for acceptance. I don't accept handouts. I work hard for what I have gotten. I work hard for what I've earned. I work hard and take care of myself. I can't accept help. I don't confess sins. I don't admit that I don't have what it takes. That makes me look weak. 
Or we have a kind of pride when we feel that, that because of what we do, we can boast in what we've accomplished. This gives us a sense of moral superiority. We can find our accomplishments and, and practices and, and boast in, in these things. We can feel better about ourselves. We're not told what the motives of, of these teachers are, these false teachers in Colossae, why they're pressuring the, the Colossians to believe this. But we know from Paul's responses, the way he has written this letter, that they were passing judgment. They were saying the Colossians weren't qualified because they weren't following certain ceremonial laws. They didn't have mystical experience. They didn't have the right kind of spirituality. And Paul combats these false claims. Chapter 16, (laughs) chapter 2, verse 16. Verse 16, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 16. Did you get it right? Therefore, I, I heard Stephanie use this at the women's event yesterday. I think it's a little cheesy, but Stephanie thinks it's helpful, so I'll say it. When you see the word therefore, you ask, what's it there for? Thank you, Aaron. Yes, what is it there for? And it's there because of all that Paul has written in Colossians 1 and 2 through 15. So because you have been qualified in Christ already, because you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light, because we are in Christ and Christ is the head, the firstborn. He's preeminent. All things were made by Christ. They're made for Christ, by Christ. All things hold together because of these realities, because Christ is in you, the hope of glory, right? All these beautiful claims that we've studied already in Colossians. Therefore, You are in Christ and Christ is above everything else. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. All of these things were external things. They're based in the the Hebrew scriptures, the, the Old Testament law. Sabbath day, what religious festivals you kept, observing certain days, having certain food that you could drink or you couldn't drink. These People were saying, these are the metrics by which we're going to judge you based on how how good or how true of a Christian you you really are. And Paul's saying, he said this, you don't gain a better understanding with God because of certain rites or rituals. If you've been united to Christ by faith, you're qualified. That's, That's the metric. Do you believe? This monthly new moon feast or other festivals, these dietary restrictions were being advocated, they were being pushed, they were being elevated in such a way that that might say, you know, if you really want to be, you really want to be a devout follower of God, you have to do these things. Paul only gave you part of the truth. You want greater spiritual power? You want fullness of wisdom? You have to practice these things. Look what Paul writes in verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Interestingly enough, the word substance there is the Greek word soma, which is where we get the word body from. That's fascinating as you think about all that Paul has written so far about the body of Christ and how we are connected to him and how the the fullness of God dwells in him in bodily form. But I remember when I first showed Addison and Avery finger shadow puppets. We do this, or you have a flashlight or a lamp in in a dark room, you can make some some cool animals. And I don't know much, you know, I know uh, the bunny, you know, the butterfly, the, what is it? The dog like this, the duck, right? 
What are you doing, Gary? Oh, the dog. Oh, I guess there's different ways to do the dog. Maybe I know the wolf. And they thought it was so cool. And right? they were learning to position their, their hands and, hey, Dad, I, look, look it, I can do a peace sign, right? <laughs> Sweet. Wow, that's, a, that's the coolest one. <laughs> and remember, I don't know if you guys played this game too, and when, maybe you still play it. <laughs> when you're younger, you're walking down the street and you're walking beside a friend and there was a shadow there and you go, oh, step on your head. <laughs> no? I guess it's just me. Okay. You did it, Christian? Okay, yeah. Still deal. Nice. Hey, I can step on your shadow head. Right? Well, we know the shadow, it points to the real person. It's not the, it's not the substance. When my, when my daughters are, are having a nightmare and they want comfort, I don't come in and say, you can hug my shadow puppet. They don't want that. They want dad. They want the real person. They want to be hugged. And this Old Testament law, this, the, the Hebrew law, these were pointers. They weren't the end. They were the substance that what they pointed to was Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. This is what they point, this is the fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment. The Old Testament laws, they found their culmination in Jesus. So Paul's saying, hey, these things are just a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. Worship Christ. The author of Hebrew writes a very similar thing in Hebrews 10.1. The author writes, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. This is a shadow. The word shadow, the image that comes to mind is one that's incomplete. Paul's saying the fullness belongs to Christ. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul writes in Romans. Paul is, is not only telling the Colossians, hey, don't let anyone pass judgment on you because these things are shadows. The substance belongs to Christ and you have Christ. You have the substance. He says, let no one disqualify you in verse 18, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. This is Christ from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Paul's saying, take care that no one keeps defrauding you. No one condemns you of your prize by delighting in a false kind of humility. This worship of angels, this taking your stand. Because Paul says, they're inflated. <laughs> they're inflated without cause. They're puffed up. When Paul writes, let no one disqualify you, it's if he's saying, you have been qualified in Christ already. Therefore, don't let someone lead you to think that you are not what you really are. In other words, no one can actually disqualify you if you don't allow yourself to be influenced that way. Christ has done the work of qualification. Therefore, the response of that is, is belief. If God has qualified you, believing these false teachers is believing a lie. The qualifier, the one who declares someone's unfit, someone's qualified, someone's accepted is God. And he has already done that of the Colossians in Christ. Therefore, let no one disqualify you. Let no one pass judgment. These opponents, those who insist on asceticism, other translations use this word, self-denial, false humility, severe discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. Probably fasting was involved in this, asceticism. 
Those who insist on a system and worship of angels, they are their own kind of self-pointed spiritual referees. And they're marked by pride. They're marked by inflated egos. They're marked by their stance in visions, claiming they have access to the visionary realm. They engage in these practices to boast. Notice what, what Paul writes there. You hold to a kind of spirituality, a kind of worship in which the focus is not Christ, but how great you are. Boom. Not good. <laughs> Repent. Turn around and look at Jesus. This is what they've done. They've built, they've served, they've, they've, they've created these practices that serve their own egos. And in so doing, Paul writes there, they do not hold fast to the head. They have been disconnected from Jesus. Because it's in Christ that the whole body is nourished, it's knit together, it grows together with a growth that is from God. Douglas Moo in his commentary on Colossians write this, those who promote the false philosophy are not mature as they boast, but they are spiritually malnourished and perishing because they do not depend on Christ. Trying to ascend to heavenly realms through one's own effort, through asceticism and visions, is hopeless. One has access to the vine realm only by being unified with Christ who ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand. So essentially, you, you move on from Christ, you're disconnected from the head. You're malnourished. It's dangerous and ignorant and arrogant. And to seek the favor and worship of angels is to fail to honor Jesus as the fullness of God. It's to fail to honor Jesus as, as fully God. He's saying that since these opponents don't hold fast to Christ, they essentially have no authority over the Colossians. They don't preach Christ, they have no authority. They don't hold to Christ, they have no authority. They've been disconnected. And he writes in verse 20, if then, or if with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And then Paul kind of quotes what they might be saying. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He gives us the, we see the, what are those called? Parentheses? Referring to things that, are, that all perish as they were used according to human precepts and teachings. Paul's saying, if you guys have died to the world with Christ, why are you submitting to worldly regulations? Doesn't make sense. Don't follow these Jewish laws, these obligations, these regulations. Jesus alone is the one who is to govern you. Jesus alone is the one who is to have rule and authority and, and you're supposed to obey him alone. He alone is the one who is the, the one who protects you from evil. He is the one who you have access to God through. Not angels or whatever worship you might engage as Jesus taught that it wasn't that went into the body that defiled a person, but what came out of the body. It's not as though these, it's, you know, you're going to be defiled spiritually by, oh, don't touch these things, don't handle these things. This is not what Jesus taught. He, he writes in, Jesus taught this in Mark 7. And Jesus gets a little graphic here. Because he called people to him again. Have you guys heard anything that I said? I felt like I just mumbled there. And he called the people to him again, Father, help me, and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, disciples asked him about the parable. And, and he said to them, then also are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person is expelled 
from outside, cannot defile him. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Then Mark tells us there, thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20. And then he said, what comes out of a person, what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Teaching of Jesus there is very offensive. <laughs> Modern religions talk about you, you, you do these things on the outside and, and very much today we have a belief in our culture that is human beings are good, at worst, neutral. We have good and evil. <laughs> Jesus is saying, up. Oh, Evil. (laughs) All these things come from within, Jesus says, and they defile a person. So these kind of rules that are being pressured from these false teachers to the Colossians, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste, they don't have any kind of power to address the heart of sin and the true problems in our life that are not about external factors, but what is going on in the heart. Since they focus on the external, these things, they don't have any power to change the heart. They don't stop the self-centered desires of the heart. In fact, what they can often do is is allow those self-centered desires to find expression and how good or not they follow those external rules. That's what Paul says in verse 23. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look like they're wise. Oh yeah, you beat your body, you're severe, you fast to this extreme level, you follow these certain food laws and dietary laws, wow, I couldn't do that. You're spiritual, you're wise. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom, but what do they do? They promote self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These things have the appearance of Wisdom. But what are they? They're promoting self-made religion. Man-centered, human-centered, externally focused religion. And you can rigorously, aggressively seek to deny yourself. You can engage in self-punishment, mortification, strict following of rules, but it will not cure the self-indulgent, focused, bent, leaning of the heart. The Latin reformers would call the heart is bent inward on itself. That's the default mode of the heart. These things don't get to the heart of the problem. It's the core is not affected when you just follow these external rules. I can use a machete to go to my backyard. I've got blackberry bushes and ivy galore in my hill, and I hate it. But it reminds me of the fallenness of sin, as Stephanie reminds me. It reminds me of my constant need to destroy that sin. And honestly, I don't know if Stephanie and I could rip out the ivy and plant stuff where our hill doesn't wash away into our yard. Maybe one day. But not now. We have these blackberry bushes that are in our, in our hill that we just kind of keep back. And I can take a machete tomorrow or this afternoon and go back there and just go to town on these things. I can get up my, my cordless trimmer and put a heavy-duty uh, wire on my trimmer and just mow these things down. I could try to get up with my lawnmower right, and mow, these, mow this ivy but next year they're going to be back. Those blackberry bushes are just going to come back. 
You know why? Because blackberry bushes are a pain to get out. You got to get under and pull those suckers out by the root. Right? You, you're, you're, you can go around in the field out here and just pick out all the yellow weeds, but they're going to come back. You can pull out the root. That's what Paul is saying. Unless you pull out the roots, unless you get at the heart of this self-indulgence, these things have no value. Paul is writing that these practices don't have any value in actually making you more godly. It might seem like you're growing godliness. You might seem like you have deeper spirituality, as these supporters claim, but it does not lead to genuine holiness, a genuine reflection of who Jesus is. Unless your heart is changed, no amount of work, practice, medication, exercises of the mind will work to the degree that Jesus promises in the gospel. The sinful nature of humanity can only be changed, healed, transformed, crucified, and raised by Christ. We have been crucified with Christ, and and Paul writes, it's no longer he, we who live, but Christ who lives in us. This is what he's talking about. The 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 crucifixion of the flesh? Crucification? Our... (laughs) We are killed. The heart of sin is gotten rid of, right? We're freed from the, the, self and it, the, the enslavement to sin. I could not think of that word. I'm sorry, guys. I think you guys understand what I'm saying. The old heart is, is removed and a new heart is put in. It doesn't mean we don't have remaining sin that, that still tempts us to, to sin, but our hearts have been transformed. And this only happens by Christ, by being reborn by the Spirit, by being changed from the inside out. This is what Paul's saying. True godliness, true holiness comes from being united to Christ. And the age, the life of the age to come, that where the risen Jesus has secured and accomplished, you don't enter this age, you don't grow into this age by the very methods that are still focused on the age that was before it, on the world, that are reliant upon the former age, the the shadow world, by focusing on perishable material things. That's what Paul writes there. You have to come to Christ and be transformed by Christ. This idea, this call is what led the reformers to to oppose self-made tradition and extra-biblical rituals that emerged in the church in medieval times. They would say, you can't go after the heart, the attitudes of the heart in pride, jealousy, envy by focusing externally. That was one of the big claims that they, they focused on. And one of the most prominent leaders of the Protestant Reformation was a guy named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a devout monk. He wanted to follow God. He wanted to be holy. He tried. He wanted to follow God in purity and holiness with this deep sense of sincerity. There's this account of his, uh, this journey that he took, this pilgrimage to Rome. And there was a place in where medieval pilgrims would go and they would climb what was called the Scala Sancta, which were these holy steps. They were supposed to be the steps that were from Pilate's palace or Pilate's house where Jesus was apparently supposed to walk up those same steps. And a practice around this time was you would walk up the steps on your knees in prayer. It's kind of a devout practice. And Martin Luther did this. He climbed during these steps during the trial. And he was, as he was climbing, he was praying the Lord's prayer each step. And when Luther got to the top, however, he, he realized he wasn't relieved. He didn't feel any closer to God. Mark Manuel writes this about Luther. When he got to the top, he was plagued with doubts. Who knows whether this is true, he wondered. He soon became increasingly convinced of the futility of such acts, whether on behalf of others or for himself. 
he realized that the only hope we can have of being right with God depends on God himself. As he would say in the Heidelberg Disputation of 1518, a foundational event in the early Reformation, this is what Luther writes. It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. And to us this morning, I think, church family, we can, we can rest and hold to the truth of this passage that if we are in Christ, if we have been united to Christ by faith, if in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, if he is the focal point of all creation, if he holds all things, if all things were created for him and through him and to him, if he holds all things together, if he is the head of the church, then to seek to build or to develop our practice, rites, our rituals that supplement or make it seem like Christ is not enough are worthless and futile and dangerous even. And Paul says, let no one disqualify you. Do not become prideful, out of touch, puffed up, and arrogant to think that you have to worship in such a way that supplements the work of Christ. If you have received Christ, if you regularly intake Christ, you are filled and richly provided in Christ, you don't need supplements. You take Jesus, if Jesus is your diet, you have no need for vitamins. You don't need to go to super supplements. You've got everything provided in Christ. This means this not only applies to practices like asceticism and food diet laws, which we might think as we're trying to apply this. All right. I can't remember the last time I tried to worship an angel. I don't know if I've ever severely beat my body to, to meet this kind of mystical experience of worship. And if anything, we might think, man, I, I should probably fast more often than I do now, you know? Only one person was really honest there. Only one person laughed. <laughs> this means, I think, that what Paul, these principles that Paul's writing to Colossians, they not only apply to the Colossians who are being pressured to believe in these dietary restrictions, this asceticism, this worship of angels, but for us, we, we are tempted to, to believe there might be a pressure which... You, you worship God or you have to have these experiences, but the focus is Christless. Paul is saying, don't spend more time, don't spend more energy on spiritual practices or mystical experience to worship. Focus on Christ. One pastor writes this, there are churches that spend more time investing in mystical practices, perhaps borrowed from Eastern spiritualities, as a way of transcending the limitations of their own traditions they spend more time on this rather than sitting at Christ's feet and worship and learning. We can, what can start out as a simple interest in those who are different from us, which is generally a good thing, can become a dangerous route to displacing what is of supreme importance. So you have those who might be teaching a kind of Christianity, a kind of spirituality that, that highlights certain practices, mystical experiences over the finished, complete <coughs> full work of Christ. So we must be on guard. We must not let anyone pass judgment on us. We must not let anyone condemn us by the depth of our feelings in worship. 
This could, this could even amount to the amount of time we pray that a pastor might, or you might have these, the voice ringing in your ear of, you are condemned. You're not a true Christian because of how little you pray. Paul writes, it is not the, the amount of faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. Therefore, church family, let no one disqualify you that you are in Christ based on external factors. We are qualified. We are are accepted. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the call, I think, from our passage this morning is to hold fast to Christ. Learn about Jesus, not to have, quote-unquote, deep spiritual experiences based on pride or puffing yourself up. Hold fast to the source, the substance. He provides leadership. He provides for every member of his body. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let your own thoughts disqualify you. The thoughts that run into your mind that you're worthless, that you don't measure up, that you don't qualify, that you're too far off, that Jesus can't love you after the things that you've done. Don't let anyone judge you or condemn you. The the perceived feelings of the closest with Jesus is not based on your status and worth with him, on your feelings. The perceived depth of your faith, the feelings that may or not be present in worship are not assessors. It's not the the metric by which we are judged in Christ. Your eye might not be pressured or tempted to observe food laws or drinking laws or festivals or worship of angels, but we are pressured to believe that experiences of worship, what we do, that those highs are to be sought above Christ. We are tempted and pressured to set up additional qualifiers and judgments based on our worth. We may set up judgments and qualifications of how good of a Christian I am or not because I yelled at my kids this week. We might feel better about ourselves because I've done my Bible study this week. Church family, in our corporate worship and in our personal worship, in our worship with our friends and in our worship with our families, may we not promote a kind of worship that places confidence in self above Christ. The church has its life in Jesus, from whom the whole body, as he writes there, supported and held together by its ligaments, grows as God causes it to grow. This is how God wants the church to grow. And why might be tempted, oh, there's more, you have to learn these things or these things. Paul is saying, keep the focus on Christ. And to us as a church, I say, keep your focus on Christ. Let's pray. I wanted to end with a personal prayer, but I I also came across this prayer in my devotional reading this morning. It's from uh, the Valley of Vision, a Puritan prayer book, and it's called Christ Alone, and it says this, O God, thy main plan and the end of thy will is to make Christ glorious and beloved in heaven, where he is now ascended, where one day all the elect will behold his glory and love and glorify him forever. Though here I love him but little, may this be my portion at last. In this world thou hast given me a beginning. One day it will be perfected in the realm above. Thou hast helped me to see and know Christ, though obscurely, to take him, receive him, possess him, love him, to bless him in my heart, mouth, and life. Let me study and stand for discipline and all the ways of worship out of love for Christ to show my thankfulness, to seek and know his will from love, to hold it in love, and to daily care for and keep 
this statue of heart. Thou hast led me to place all my nature and happiness in oneness with Christ, in having heart and mind centered only on him, in being like him and communicating good to others. This is my heaven on earth. But I need the force, the energy, the impulses of thy spirit to help me on the way to Jerusalem. Here it is, my duty, to be as Christ in this world, to do what he would do, to live as he would live, to walk in love and meekness. Then would he be known, and I would have peace in death. So, Father, we say thank you and amen to this prayer. Would you help us to hold fast to Jesus? to help us to grow in him. Thank you that we are not qualified, we are not judged, we are not condemned on the basis of our external acts of worship, but that you sent Jesus to bear the condemnation and judgment on our behalf and that in Christ we are freed and forgiven, we are qualified and accepted. Help us to live in the sweetness of knowing that Jesus is enough and help us to be free. Help us to enjoy the substance of Jesus and to give our lives to helping others follow him. In his name we pray. Amen.